are listening to episode 39 of Dave's Daredevil podcast in which Bullseye faces Electra. Somebody gonna die! Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet show all about Marvel Comics man without fear, Daredevil. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This week we have a big issue. Big as in length since it's double-sized, and big as in stature and relevance. This week, somebody dies, and everything comes to a climax. It's an issue that pushes the violence right up to the extent allowed by the Comics Code Authority. Yes, it was still a thing at this time, and this is going to sound weird, but I ended up wondering if we benefited from the Comics Code. I know, you're probably yelling at your MP3 player, and I don't entirely disagree. The code was prohibitive, and that's true. However, did that prohibitive nature perhaps inspire more creative avenues of storytelling? Take a character like Morbius, for example. The code forbid monsters such as vampires, and by the 70s, it had become a little bit more relaxed. That's how we got Tomb of Dracula. But Morbius was a freak of science, not supernatural. So he ended up becoming an original creation to circumvent the Comics Code Authority. The code also stated that villains had to get their comeuppance, and crime was not to be shown in a positive light. So this means that there was a clear distinction between the good guys and the bad guys and good would solidly win. I hear you when you say that this is not realistic, this does not reflect real life. But Stan Lee was able to find ways around this, having Spider-Man meet defeat only to rebound and win. Here's the flip side, this is my main point. Once the restrictions were lifted, characters and concepts could be revisited, and in ways that really hadn't been done before, allowing a level of perpetuity to some concepts. For example, During the code, a police figure is a fine, upstanding character that cannot be depicted in a negative light. However, once that is removed, modern writers can now delve into the skeletons in that character's closet. This creates a new iteration of that character. Look at Jim Gordon in Batman Year One. No, he wasn't a corrupt cop, but he was cheating on his wife. So I think the code's existence and its removal... And the timing of that led to some new, fertile ground. Now, I know it's too late for long story short, but it's kind of a random thought to ponder as we go about our week. I like planting those thought seeds in your head. But that thought will probably be forgotten after this week's issue. Daredevil number 181. It's kind of a big deal. Not as much to catch up on, really. This one's pretty straightforward. Kingpin is mad after Daredevil smashed his mayoral candidate, the corrupt Randolph Cherry. So... He's sending his assassin and Matt Murdock's former love, Electra, to kill Foggy in retaliation. Meanwhile, Bullseye sits in the prison cell after Daredevil saved his life and brought him in. That's the main setup. That's all we need to know going in. So with that setup, I'm going to go to a podcast promo for In Country. That's Tom Panarese's podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom. And when we come back, the big one.
In Country has re-upped for another tour, and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics' The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. And we are back. And you know, something else this issue had that isn't really in the modern context, at least as collectors today, is the element of surprise. Today, you visit any comic company's website and they're prone to spoiling big events or promoting them heavily. This comic comes from a time, and a wonderful time at that, where you could be surprised by the events of each and every issue. Because Wizard wasn't telling you what was going to happen, and neither was the company themselves. And that's probably why Daredevil number 181 had such a big impact when it hit stands with an April 1982 cover date. The cover itself is pretty well known. Bullseye and Elektra leap at each other, both with one of Elektra's sigh, as a superimposed Daredevil looks shocked and aghast in the background. Something I noted, which I didn't realize with issue 179 a few episodes back, is that the color yellow is an interesting choice for this cover, especially when you take it in context with issue 179 in that cover. Yellow is the color of fear, and both covers feature frightening scenarios, and both revolve around Elektra, who is the source of emotion, and she's also a bit of an Achilles heel for Daredevil. 179 represents the fear of being defeated by Elektra, while this cover features the fear for Elektra's fate. In both, Daredevil is not an active participant with the main proceedings, but more a presence, or perhaps the scenario being presented as a presence within Daredevil. Either way, this is an extremely famous cover, which has been referenced multiple times, including X-23 issue 15 and the IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series issue 3. It's a stark warning to the contents of the issue, which will become a major turning point for the character of Matt Murdock and the series as a whole. The story itself is entitled Last Hand. It was written and penciled by Frank Miller, inked and colored by Klaus Janssen, and lettered by Joseph Rosen. The story has been reprinted several times. In Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2, The 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time Number 1 from 2001, the Daredevil vs. Bullseye trade paperback, Elektra the official movie adaptation trade paperback, The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen omnibus hardcover, and Comixology, Marvel Digital, and Digital Unlimited subscription service. Jumping into the story. Fuming in prison, Bullseye seethes with the desire to take revenge on Daredevil for both putting him in the slammer and for saving his life. Bullseye has been putting a ton of time into the gym, preparing for when he and Daredevil meet again, but he gets visitors like TV host Tom Snide who wants to do an interview with the assassin. Bullseye is not interested and is still suffering from his severe headaches for which he is taking guard-administered medication, but he is only biding his time. Also in prison is the Punisher, who mentions, intentionally, that the Kingpin has a new assassin in the form of Elektra, and that Kingpin is probably not coming for Bullseye. This sends Bullseye over the edge. He takes Snide's offer for an interview and fakes a headache, so a guard gives him a pill. Bullseye turns the medicine into ammunition, spitting it back at the guard, and makes a daring escape. 
He uses the guard's gunshot to break his cuffs and a microphone cord to take Snide hostage. Bullseye makes his way to the yard where he co-ops, or should I say violently steals, a police helicopter. With transportation, Bullseye flees into the chaos of New York. Alright, let's take a moment to stop there. Beginning with the very first page, which is an image of Daredevil taking a sniper's bullet to the head, we know that this issue is going to be a very big departure. There's more at stake here than ever before. A life hangs in the balance. But more than that, we get into the head of Bullseye, which is not a place that one feels comfortable for any sane reason. He's seething with rage. Not only did he get taken down by Daredevil, again, but the man without fear saved his life, which means the assassin's rep is damaged. It eats at him, and he's biding his time, he believes, until the kingpin comes to break him out of the slammer. Now sure, this is exposition, but it doesn't just bring us up to speed. It looks at the events in a whole new light. Bullseye has a wounded pride and a deadly aim, which is a toxic mixture. Miller's art in the first few pages changes a bit. There's more grit in it, and by that I mean a texture to the prison scenes. The colors also add to the dark feeling of foreboding. They're all cold and laid upon minimalist images of Bullseye in a cell waiting and plotting. I should note that there's a little bit more of the Sin City era Frank Miller present here, specifically in the shots of the prison cell. These panels look like they were ripped from Hardigan sitting in his cell from That Yellow Bastard. The use of rectangles as imprisonment are very much in effect, with the shadows of the prison bars cast across the floor, which is appropriate for, well, a prison. Although Bullseye seems to have it pretty nice for a prisoner. He has a private gym, thanks to his parole officer, and it looks pretty well stocked on equipment. That's pretty cushy for an unrepentant killer. But the hope still exists that Bullseye can be reformed. Spoiler, he can't. I know it, you know it, dogs know it, but I guess the sentiment is sweet. Now, Bullseye is still suffering from these crippling headaches from his brain tumor, and he's taking medication. Now, the pills are administered by a guard named Harry, who likes to mess with Bullseye just a little bit by taking his sweet, sweet time getting the bottle open. Bullseye promises Harry that he is a dead man, and that is a promise that is very literally kept. And while Bullseye's just kind of towing the line, killing time instead of people, along comes the Punisher. Ray of Sunshine, Frank Castle. Now Frank is in prison because of events in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 15. That story involved some poisoned ink going into the Daily Bugle. Yeah, it's not the best, but the Punisher is exactly where he wants to be. He's not locked up in prison with criminals, they're locked in with him. And he plays perfectly on Bullseye's pride. He wounds the thin-skinned assassin. The Punisher even tells Bullseye that he wants him to do something stupid, that's why he's filling the assassin in. But Bullseye doesn't do something stupid, he does something absolutely brilliant. He stages a successful prison breakout during a TV interview with Tom Snide. Now, on that note, I want to give just a bit of context for this interview scene. This issue was released in December of 1981. In June of that same year, TV host Tom Snyder, Snyde's namesake, had a much-publicized interview with Charles Manson on his show Tomorrow. 
So the bullseye interview looks to be pulling from the Snyder interview right out of the headlines, law and order style. A similar interview with Manson by Geraldo Rivera, of all people, inspired the prison interview in the movie Natural Born Killers. And that, in the film, led to a prison escape, which I do believe to be a complete coincidence. However, I do want to make a note that I did watch the entire Tom Snyder interview with Charles Manson as a bit of research to this. Not only did it not bring anything good to the table, it left a very bad taste in my mouth. This is the lengths that I go to to produce a podcast. But in the interview here, Bullseye is allowed to wear his costume, which means he's already kind of keyed into the proper mindset. So he fakes a headache as an opening salvo. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Young Michael Leyland of Hey Kids Comics spotted a detail when they covered this show in their Daredevil special. I would have totally overlooked this had he not pointed this out. In previous pages, when Bullseye suffered from a headache, there was this noticeable aura around him. Here, he's faking. So Miller does not do the aura. We're cued in. Well-spotted young Master Leyland. But the entire escape happens incredibly fast. And it is 99% improvised. He counts on the guard shooting for the gut and reflexively puts his shackles in the bullet's path. Once that officer is down, Bullseye has a gun but very few bullets, so he needs a hostage. And thankfully, Tom Snide is a slowpoke. From that point on, Bullseye literally breaks out of prison with two bullets, a hostage, and a microphone. He's damn near a Beck song. And everything goes his way. He uses the last two bullets to take out the spotlights. He throws the gun at the sniper mounted on the helicopter and then uses the microphone to grapple his way onto the chopper. There are a lot of crafty people who can make things out of nothing or very little and then sell it on Etsy. But you know what? Bullseye just trumped all of the DYI culture with this escape. So, Bullseye is back on the street, and even though it's hard to believe that nobody tracked the helicopter, I mean, air traffic control, where did he land the thing? But he's back on the streets, that's the point, right? It's not going to be the biggest nitpick I have in this issue. Not only did he get back on the streets, he just did it on live television. This issue has just begun, folks. It doesn't take long for Daredevil to hear of Bullseye's escape, and he suits up and goes on the prowl. Meanwhile, Bullseye tracks a goon to Eric Slaughter's hideout and kills the muscle that Slaughter throws at him. Instead of being mad, Slaughter offers to help Bullseye track down his real target, Elektra. Slaughter supplies Bullseye with a place to stay and intel on all the major players, which is how Bullseye comes up with the craziest idea. What if Matt Murdock is Daredevil? Speaking of Matt Murdock, he and Foggy are in court the next day, unaware that Bullseye and Elektra are both in attendance as well. As Foggy leaves court, Bullseye slaps a listening device on him and listens as Foggy hails a cab. Bullseye also gets a cab. Well, he kills the cabbie and steals it, but he uses that to follow Foggy's cab. In Foggy's cab, it is revealed that the driver is Elektra, sent by the Kingpin to kill him. Elektra pulls the cab into a secluded parking garage and gets Foggy out, preparing to do him in. But Foggy recognizes her, and he calls her Matt's girl, from college. This messes with Elektra's head, and she tells Foggy to take a hike, and lets him live. But she's not alone in her emotional moment. Bullseye steps out of the shadows, gun in hand. And then, the fight begins with the two trading blows and drawing blood. But Elektra loses a sigh and takes a razor-sharp playing card to the throat. Bullseye compliments her as he picks up her sigh, saying that she was pretty good, but he's magic. And for his next trick, 
he runs her own sigh through her chest until it protrudes out of her back and then watches as she staggers away, leaving a trail of blood. Electra makes it to the brownstone of Matt Murdock, where Matt finds her on the porch. And while a crowd watches, including Bullseye, Electra dies in Matt Murdock's arms. So, Matt springs into action with some fairly stock images of him throwing on the costume and rushing out. Nothing too earth-shattering on that, but Bullseye arrives at this dockside shack, and the mood reeks of Will Eisner with the fog and the cartooniness, and I'm thankful for just a skosh of humor here. One of Slaughter's stooges is smoking a cigarette, which has Bullseye nick-fitting. So, when the stooge waves the cigarette out the window, Bullseye grabs it and pokes his head in, making a dramatic entrance. Slaughter shows his true colors. See, just before Bullseye arrives, Slaughter's all about taking Fisk's orders, which are to kill Bullseye. After Bullseye kills everyone else in the room, Slaughter offers him a cigar and decides to help the assassin with the knife to his face. And you know, can't say I wouldn't do the same thing. But Bullseye puts the pieces together. The craziest notion. Matt Murdock is Daredevil. This kind of makes Bullseye the smartest guy in the room. Fisk hasn't put it together, despite clear connections. Foggy has no clue. Electra, well, knows, but it's because Matt told her. So beyond Ben Urich, Bullseye is the first of our main cast to put it together using solid reasoning and evidence. And not much evidence because he just uses a picture. There is another side to that particular coin, though. See, Matt's in court. He's presenting a case. In the courtroom are both Electra and Bullseye. And you're telling me Matt doesn't catch a scent or a heartbeat, or something, he can pick out a distinctive cough from blocks away, but no idea that these two are there? I don't buy that. And Bullseye even comes near Matt when he slaps the listening device onto Foggy's shoulder. Bullseye is in proximity, and Matt doesn't have a clue. With Bullseye loose, the assassin has to be on Matt's brain. So had Matt caught wind of Bullseye and suited up, Electra could have avoided a grisly fate. And this leads to another thing. Hear me out on this. A case could be made that Electra's death lies on Matt's shoulders. Now, I don't personally believe that, and I'll tell you why in a moment. However, a case could be made that, yes, this is Matt's fault. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a moment. Jumping back to the death of Electra's father. No, it's not entirely Matt's fault. Not directly. He was there to help. If you recall, he rushed in. He had a hand in the events leading up to it by trying to play the hero. Now that was the event that sent Electra off into the world and on the path of becoming an assassin. Again, this isn't directly due to Matt's action. But it is possible that the hostage situation could have ended peacefully, with little to no bloodshed had Matt not interfered. Then, of course, there is Bullseye. Matt saves Bullseye on the subway tracks, letting him live to kill again. Despite the history this man has, Matt's compassion won out. And here, where his keen senses completely miss the smell and the telltale heartbeat of an escaped villain leading to the death of Electra. All of these could be entered as exhibits in the prosecution versus Matt Murdock in the death of Electra. And sure, a case could be made, but the case would be full of holes. Here's the logic and here's why. After the death of Jack Murdock, Matt took a higher path. He aimed to do noble and just things in and out of his costume, granting him some form of redemption. But Electra stems from a similar tragedy. She lost her father, and then she descended into revenge 
and anger, which allowed her to be corrupted and lose her soul. You could say what you want about mainstream comics, but this is damn near Shakespeare. Two people bound together by a similar fate, who took two paths that led to two different outcomes. I would say this is a tragedy, but I think that's a little bit too on the nose for Electra. But it does appear that Electra is having this Darth Vader style late in life conversion at this moment when she shows Foggy mercy. This could be her one final moment of revelation. Why does she spare Foggy? Because he calls her Matt's girl. Without the connective tissue from who she was to who she is, Foggy accidentally sees the person that she was before her fall from grace. This takes her back to that moment, this point of origin. This is the saddest element of Electra's death. She was teetering on the line between redemption and damnation and leaning towards redemption. Just as Bullseye steps out of the shadow, Electra is having this moment of quiet introspection. She's standing there completely unguarded, without poise. She's just leaning on the cab, sorting through her emotions. Had Bullseye not arrived, what would have happened? Now, forgetting Marvel canon beyond this, and looking at it as a product strictly of its time, without any further context, the mind would stagger at that idea. What is going through Electra's mind? What if she went the opposite direction? Now, Miller himself explored this very question in What If number 35, and Electra ran to Matt, who fled the city with her when Kingpin put a bounty on Electra's head, and the two married and lived happily ever after. Since this is from the pen of Miller himself, it's as close to a definitive answer to this question as we will ever get. It's kind of the last temptation of Electra. However, in context of canon, Bullseye does show up, gun in hand. Now, I feel the need to point that out. Gun in hand. Bullseye could have capped her from a distance and called it good. She's dead. That's his goal. However, his pride dictates that this be done up close and personal. He wants her to know who killed her, and he wants it to be sadistic. And it is definitely sadistic. There are three pages of fighting, and in those three pages there is only one bit of dialogue, and that is a surprised yell from Bullseye. These two don't say anything. They get right down to business, and they know what's on the line. Now, from the caption boxes, within Bullseye's head we learn, Electra never had a chance. For as skilled and cunning as she is, Bullseye's pure, relentless hate and anger is just too focused. He's on a mission, and she's compromised by her newly found emotions. It is brutal. The wound to the throat would have likely killed her after the beating that she took. But Bullseye has to make this a desecration. And yes, it's been pointed out and said, it's very obvious, the image of Electra being run through by her sigh isn't just highly suggestive of rape, it is a rape. The brutal part is that Bullseye casually watches her stagger away. He slowly follows her as she crawls at points, and he hovers over her like a pet owner waiting for the dog to poop. And he's enjoying it. He's enjoying every single moment. When Electra somewhat predictably falls into Matt's arms and dies, the crowd looks horrified, which would be, I would believe, the most appropriate reaction to somebody dying right in front of you. But Bullseye very casually, very coldly lights a cigarette. Now pardon this expression, but Bullseye is putting this very moment in his spank bank. That is the potency of this moment and why it stands out in Marvel canon. It's brutal on a level that mainstream comics had not given us. And it's a death of a popular character. 
And again, it benefited from an element of surprise that we don't get very often in today's comics. Miller, in an interview, told the story of going to Jim Shooter and telling him he wanted to kill off Elektra, despite the fact that readers loved her, despite the fact that she was helping the book sell. Shooter simply looked at Miller and said, tell me a story. This issue is the result, the concentrated, stark horror of the method that Elektra dies still strikes the reader in the jaw. And for as many times as this comic has been talked about, there's not a lot I can say beyond what I already have to expound on this. It's harsh, it's brutal, relentless, and suddenly, all bets are off. And that's what propels us into the third and final leg of this story. Matt and Foggy go to the city morgue to identify Electra's body. Bullseye, disguised as a morgue attendant, watches quietly, still mulling the idea that Matt Murdock could be Daredevil. As Matt leaves, Bullseye tests his theory, throwing a scalpel at Matt who blocks it with his cane, and Bullseye is a little bit more than intrigued. So, with this hunch, Bullseye goes to the Kingpin to lobby for his job back, and the Kingpin says that if Bullseye can bring him the body of Daredevil, the spot is his. So, Bullseye sneaks into Matt's brownstone, creeping up on the red-headed lawyer, but as he gets closer, a red-gloved hand comes down on his shoulder. Daredevil is in costume and wastes no time going to blows, beginning an epic fight to end all epic fights. Across rooftops, through buildings, on top of an elevated train, these two beat the living out of each other, because it's personal now. And the two end up on a power line, walking it like a tightrope. But Daredevil is in his element and gives just a light leap, which knocks Bullseye off balance. As Bullseye begins to fall, Daredevil grabs his wrist. Bullseye tells Daredevil that he will not save him this time, and Daredevil agrees, because he tells Bullseye that he will never kill anyone else again, and then drops Bullseye, who falls to the ground below, and the battle reaches its violent end. The issue wraps up with the Kingpin burning Bullseye's file, and Matt visits Elektra's grave as Bullseye, in a full body cast, mulls his intent for revenge. No matter how long it takes, he will get Daredevil. Just wait. Remember just a bit ago when I pointed out how Matt did not notice Bullseye. I will say this, I feel a bit of validation when Matt jumps at hearing Bullseye's voice in the morgue. And I know the argument that some of you will make. In this, this is a quiet morgue versus a crowded courtroom. And I know this, but I must point out Daredevil was able to single out a cough from blocks away, under the pen of the same writer. Sure, he filtered through the sounds, he was concentrating. However, Bullseye verbally told Foggy, good job, while Matt was only feet away. And looking back at that scene, Bullseye had to walk right by Matt, not three feet away. It shouldn't matter as much as it does, but it does bother me because it taints this story a bit. Instead of creating this tragic irony, in the same vein as Spider-Man's web breaking Gwen's neck, it just comes off as sloppy and Miller contradicting himself just a bit. But I've made my statement on this, your mileage may vary. Now having said that, and mentioning Gwen Stacy, I realize that's one of the best moments to put this up against in Marvel Comics. Both are the death of a major character. But why does this outweigh that, at least in my opinion? Because of the scene in the morgue. Sure. We saw Gwen right after she died. 
She's in Spider-Man's arms. He puts her on the ground and then she's dead and buried respectfully. Here, Electra's body is bruised. She still has dried blood on her face. She's laid out naked on a gurney, covered only with a sheet. Gwen was a dead body. This is a corpse. And Miller makes sure to jab at your heart. There's a very understated single set of panels. One is Matt seemingly looking down at Electra, and yes, I know looking, but it's the pose. Now, the panel of Matt looking down is juxtaposed against a close up of Electra's face. They're opposed. Electra's image is on top looking up, Matt is on the bottom looking down. Had they switched this around, it might look a little bit more mournful. Now, I don't know if Matt is actually considering a final peck goodbye. That would be a bit odd, but this framing of the panels allows that intimacy to exist without it becoming creepy or becoming uncomfortable, and it slides easily under the comic's code. And then Bullseye tries to kill Matt to test his theory. Now sure, he's right, and Matt easily, damn near casually, blocks the scalpel, but that could have been really messy and a very awkward moment. And then we get down to it, the fight between Daredevil and Bullseye, the third major conflict in the issue. Every time that these two have fought before under Miller's pen, it's escalated a bit each time in its savagery, and here, the floodgates are off. Completely off. There's no dialogue. There's no heroic stances. Daredevil has done enough talking, and he goes directly to blows. And Bullseye knows this time is different, because he flees at first and jumps through Matt's window and across the roof. You know, forget this mess. Or so it would seem. He's actually baiting Daredevil out of the house into a location where Bullseye wants to stage the fight because he stashed a couple of important weapons. Electra's discarded sigh. They are waiting on the rooftop. That would be on my list of bad ideas because it just pisses Daredevil off even more. Daredevil strikes fast and he strikes hard because he's playing for keeps. Previously, it wasn't personal. It was a hero and villain doing their thing. This time, there's blood on Daredevil's hands, and it belongs to Elektra because he saved Bullseye's life. Daredevil isn't here to serve justice. He's serving a vendetta, and all of his rules, all of his restraint, and his discipline are gone. He likely aims to kill Bullseye. Looking at the fight from start to finish, there are a total of nine solid blows that are thrown. These are blows that connect. Seven of them belong to Daredevil. This is not a fight as much as it is Daredevil beating the shit out of Bullseye. Bullseye lands one good kick to Daredevil's back, which sends the man without fear out a window, and Bullseye also jabs Matt in the hip with a sigh. But the sigh happens as they fall into a skylight. It's more accidental than anything. He's never faced Daredevil in this state, and he's really not prepared at all. And the fight comes down to a perfect allegory for this moment. A tightrope. Miller made a wise choice by keeping us out of Matt's head for this, and letting the visual of these two landing on a thin thread do the storytelling. Matt, the man with all the rules, who defies them by masquerading as Daredevil, who operates under a different set of rules. The legal eagle who takes the law into his own hands. The walking paradox whose handicap gives him his gifts. He's always been on a tightrope metaphorically. Always walking such a thin path, balancing so many aspects that are contradictory to one another. The slightest shift can have Matt plummet off the edge. The slightest loss of control can send him falling. There is the ultimate moment of temptation in Daredevil having Bullseye by the wrist above the streets below. Miller, thankfully, leaves us with 
just a bit of ambiguity as to what is happening. It could be looked at as cold-blooded murder. Daredevil, let's go, drops Bullseye, it's cold, clean revenge. But we have the addition of Bullseye trying to stab at his own lifeline in Daredevil, which means that Daredevil drops him out of a bit of self-defense. If I'm going to give my take on it, I'm going to be truthful. Daredevil was out for revenge. He realized how unrepentant, unreformed Bullseye is and realized that the best thing he can do is rectify the mistake he made when he saved Bullseye's life. And to some extent, I'm good with that. Because I don't see this as cold-blooded murder. Bullseye is not an innocent. He still poses a danger to Daredevil even as Hornhead is saving his life. Now, of course, Bullseye doesn't die. So what we're talking about here is intent. And I don't believe that Daredevil was of a mind to take Bullseye back to the prison that he just escaped from. But thankfully, Bullseye didn't die because Matt would have regretted this. As it stands, Bullseye is basically off the street. No fuss, no muss. He is not a threat. He won't be for a long time. But that moment would have haunted Matt for the rest of his natural life. Electra's death because he saved Bullseye's life is more than enough burden to carry. So, with all of that said, what is my final verdict on Daredevil number 181? We have three major movements. Bullseye's prison escape, Bullseye and Electra's fight, and finally Daredevil versus Bullseye. This is the culmination of Miller's run to date, and the ultimate turning point, and it does not disappoint. The understated emotion in the story is very tangible and accessible without ever actually being stated. Since we are not in Matt's head to see his internal reaction to Elektra's death, we're left with ample visual cues. Bullseye, already a scary foe, becomes cemented as Daredevil's arch nemesis with one major act of violence. It was a satisfying point to put down the book, as all of the dominoes had fallen into place. And it remains a satisfying read every time I pick it up. And each time I do, I discover something new about this comic. So for the moment, this is where we leave the world of 1982 and Miller's noir ninja mafia take on Daredevil to journey back to some classic tales. But rest assured, this is the point we will pick up on when the trail leads us here, right where we left off. Now for the moment, I have two emails just to clean out the inbox before next week. Our first email is from the one, the only, Luke Giaconetti. His subject line is, What kind of a world do we live in? Where a man dressed as a bat gets all my public. Luke writes, Dave. Hey man, I wanted to drop you a quick line about your Daredevil Batman episode. Both of these crossover specials were brand new to me, so I got to learn a bit about them, which is always appreciated, and your discussions about fandom were thought-provoking. While the books themselves may have been mostly fluff, the episode, I thought, still came off well as a tribute to the crossed paths of the two heroes. I have a theory regarding Batman, the gist of which you touched on in this episode. I call it the Batman Minimum Appreciation Index. The idea is that everyone likes Batman to a certain level. No one actively dislikes Batman. Compare this to a character like Superman whom one can find vocal detractors very easily. The same goes for other popular characters such as Wolverine, Green Lantern, Iron Man, Captain America, Wonder Woman, and so forth. Even though I myself am not a Batman fan, the most Batman stuff I've ever read has and the Outsiders in the title. I still like him as a character at some level. 
Appropriately, just last night, I read the Batman 89 comic adaptation by Denny O'Neill and Jerry Ordway, which brought me right back to being nine years old in a dark theater and hearing the Danny Elfman score swelling up around me. There's a reason why Batman has the minimum appreciation index. He's a character which elicits powerful emotional responses. The issue of fandom is one I've had to deal with myself over the last year. Now, listeners may know that I have a podcast called Earth Destruction Directive, which focuses on Japanese giant monsters, or daikaiju if you prefer. I've been a Godzilla fan literally for as long as I remember. So this year was a big year film-wise for me, with the release of the legendary Godzilla a few months back. And much like it was back in 1998 with the TriStar Godzilla, the fandom was assaulted by early adopter newbie fans with phrases like Godzilla done right, or not silly and stupid like the old ones, and so forth. Coupled with this, was a massive influx of folks proclaiming themselves to be old-school Godzilla fans who loved the big G, but hadn't seen a G film since they were kids. My initial reaction to these is to bristle against both of them, put my fists up in front of my chin, and challenge them, but this reaction is useless, and ultimately counterproductive. The naysayers tearing down the old to build up the new, well, guess what? They're still excited for a Godzilla movie. They're still going to the theater and putting their money down for the King of the Monsters, and as a fan, you can use that as a foothold, a teachable moment, as the progs like to say. You can say, if you enjoyed a serious take on Godzilla, why not also try these films which have a similar approach? The Johnny and Susie come latelys, well, everyone starts out as a new fan that way at some point. So even if they want to build up cred by saying they were big into it as a kid, it's a chance as a fan to help welcome someone new to the fold, to cultivate their enthusiasm. Something like, if you liked the movies you watched as a kid, check out these new DVD and Blu-ray releases, or what have you. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. But being an unwelcoming jerk doesn't help you or the fandom, it just makes you a jerk. I agree with your take on fandoms. Don't bury another fandom you don't belong to, but don't let your fandom be buried either. Grow your fandom in positive ways and learn about other fandoms. All I would add is the question, why? If you talk to someone who loves a character who you don't know much about or don't appreciate, ask them why they follow that character. If someone tells you they cannot stand your favorite character, ask them why they dislike them so much. I've said this many times before, but it bears repeating. Comic book fandom is not a zero-sum game. Unfortunately for geeks on the internet, too often we get focused on winning rather than coexisting. I like to think that I don't fall into this trap, but I often did as a younger man. Daredevil being a prime example of a fandom I would gladly bury, but having learned more about the character, grown the pie so to speak, I can appreciate him and understand where his fans are coming from, even if I don't have the same feelings that they do. Thanks for the show and looking forward to hearing more of Miller's run, Luke. I like this idea, Luke, of the Minimum Appreciation Index. Now true, there are a lot of people who aren't fans per se, but appreciate Batman. But is it because they genuinely came to that on their own, or because of the many interactions of Batman in the media? I'm not getting snarky on your theory, I'm actually expounding it. I'm more wondering what comes first, the fandom or the marketing? There was a time when that was a simple question, not so much anymore. Batman is a really more available, much like Wolverine than almost any other character, so more available avenues for emotional responses. If we took a character like Daredevil and presented many versions over many medias, would there be a minimum appreciation index for him? Although I will say I think that already exists. I think Daredevil has a similar index because there aren't that many people who actively hate Daredevil. 
they think he's okay or they haven't read much of him, at least in my experience. And fandom is an odd thing. Like you said, we can nurture new fans or show them the door. One helps, one hinders. One of my biggest regrets in fandom is from 2006 when Superman Returns was released. Now up to that point, I had enough Superman shirts that I could wear one every day for weeks and never repeat the same one. Different colors, different iterations. But as that movie approached, I didn't want to be confused with the Fairweather fans. So I basically stuck the shirts in a drawer and put a three-month moratorium on them. And I was kind of looking down my nose at potential fans who may be introduced to Superman for the first time because I thought my fandom was more pure. That was terribly lame, and I was way too old to act that way. And I really wonder if I could have had some great discussions and lit some fan fires, if not for my own pretentiousness. And that attitude, that thought process, or at least the regret thereof, I should say, it led to a lot of the fan talk on the episode itself. It was part of the thought process. So I'm glad that the talk provoked some thought from my provoked thoughts. I know, it's kind of meta, but it works. But I appreciate you dropping me a line, Luke, as he was kind enough to pimp. Check out Earth Destruction Directive on the Two True Freaks Network. And my final email, which will clean out the public email box, is from Savannah Rogers with an email entitled Ultimate Daredevil and Electra. Savannah writes, Dave, I'm a new subscriber to your podcast. I'm currently on episode four, but I've spent the whole night listening to the first few episodes. You just gave your email in episode three and said that you would like to hear from some listeners. Considering how I'm not anywhere near caught up on the show, I'm hesitant to email, but I would love to hear your take on Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra, as well as Ultimate Elektra, the sequel to the original miniseries. Along with the Daredevil movie, that series made me fall in love with these comics. Mind you, I was eight or nine when that movie came out. So if you haven't already, I'd love to hear your take on it. Also, great job with the show. This podcast has been great while I'm on my quest to collect every first print Daredevil comic out there. It's incredibly well done. Keep doing what you're doing. Kindest regards, Savannah Rogers. Well, Savannah, I have read both Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra and Ultimate Elektra. It's been a while since I've done so. I remember liking them, and I intend to cover them at some point down the line. The only real contention that I can recall was that it didn't quite jive up with Ultimate Daredevil's first appearance. I believe that was in Ultimate Marvel Team-Up. And if you have binge listened to this show, I am sorry. I know my voice had to grate on your nerves at some point. It grates on mine when I'm editing the thing. But the thing is, I dig that that miniseries, or those miniseries, I should say, was your entry point for Daredevil. Because that shows kind of what I was just talking about with fandom. It's such a different entry point from when I entered it or when, say, Shag entered it from the Nascenti era. And that's a really important perspective to keep fresh in my head. We all have different entry points, different versions of Daredevil we were introduced to. You would have been about the same age as I was when I discovered Daredevil. And I believe, with certain exceptions in material, eight or nine is probably the perfect age for this character to capture the imagination. And Savannah, may I recommend Daredevil Season 1. It was kind of in the same vein. It was a very cool read that Trentus Magnus put me onto. It wraps this new story against uh, the early Daredevil issues. Definitely worth a read if you haven't already. And as far as your quest to seek out every first print Daredevil issue, you're doing the Lord's work. You're doing a noble cause. But I would ask, drop us a line now and then. Let us know how that collection is going. I'm definitely interested to hear more about that. But if you do want to email, even though it will take me some time to get to it on the air, please do so. The email address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. 
And please, feel free to do a quick review on iTunes if you would. It would boost the show's exposure and it would help in this time of returning. But that brings us to the end of another week. I'd like to thank my emailers and everybody who supported the show when it was, well, offline. Next week classic Daredevil returns with issue 7, the debut of the Red Costume and Namor the Submariner. Prepare to learn more about Marvel's Atlantis than you ever expected to know. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, the kind of man without fear. Never far away whenever danger's near. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh!